Thank you so much. Appreciate it very, very much. If you would, uh, turn to Revelation chapter 1. We've been going through, uh, at the same time, the book of Acts and Daniel and 1 Corinthians and now Revelation. And we're seeking to answer the question, how do we live to please God in a culture that seems to be increasingly hostile and pagan in the sense of not recognizing the true God and not embracing uh, anymore the, the Judeo-Christian heritage that we've had in this country. And the basic uh, message that you, we want to think about this morning is that the way we're to respond is to not be afraid. And we'll see that as we go through this passage this morning. There are two things that stand out when we think about the issue of fear is that we need to understand that fear plays into our lives in many, many ways. Sometimes we don't even realize how fear influences the decisions that we make. And we need to also understand that uh, the issue of control is the issue that drives the issue of fear. And hopefully we'll see how that's reflected in this passage. But um, many of you probably remember, uh, not that you were necessarily, necessarily there, but in 1933, FDR um, had a, a speech that he gave at his inauguration in which he talked about uh, four different kinds of freedom. And one of those kinds of freedom that he was encouraging the American people to have was freedom from fear. And so he, he made the uh, famous comment, so first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Now, we enjoy Andy Griffith in our household, and there's a story about the haunted house where uh, Barney is, at the beginning of the story, um, acting very brave and talking about this quote from FDR saying, you know, we have nothing to fear except fear itself, and then he ends up, he ends up being made by Andy, the sheriff, to go check out this haunted house. And obviously, he, he and his partner, Gomer, are scared back to the sheriff's office. And um, they have this discussion about what happened. And, and Barney says, all I'm saying is that there are some things beyond uh, the kin of mortal man that shouldn't be tampered with. We don't know everything, Andy. There's plenty going on right now in the twilight zone that we don't know anything about. And I think we ought to stay clear. Andy says, well, wasn't it you that said we got nothing to fear but fear itself? And he said, well, that's exactly what I've got, fear itself. <laughs> and the reality is there are a lot of people right there in the Barney Five shoes. When you think about all that's going on these days, things that are threatening, things that are confusing, uh, just the way uh, things are being handled by our own government, uh, the fear factor is very, very high. And it would be surprising probably to many people to really think about the kinds of decisions they're making and whether or not they're simply being driven by fear. And the reality is nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to do anything simply out of fear. In fact, we're told just the opposite. The most um, prevalent command in the Bible is do not fear. And so... As we look at uh, Revelation chapter 1, I want to encourage us to think about our own lives, think about our own response to what's going on, 
Think about our own decision-making and whether or not it's being driven by fear or not. So in Revelation chapter 1, it begins in verse 1 by saying, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which you will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of God. The book of Revelation Uh, as it says in the very first few verses, was given from God the Father to God the Son and given through an angel to the Apostle John. And some people think this took place in 95 AD uh, after the fall of Jerusalem. Some people think it took place about 65 AD before the fall of Jerusalem. But either way, um, 
John is on the Isle of Patmos, which is a small island off the coast of Asia Minor, which is uh, Asia Minor is modern day Turkey. So he's on this little island and it's like a prison colony. It's where they sent people, put them into exile as a form of punishment. And so John is evidently suffering for his Christian faith on this little island and he receives this vision. And so one way or the other, whether it was 95 A.D. or 65 A.D., I won't get into that uh, debate right now. But either way, it's in anticipation of very, very difficult times coming to the church. Persecution. It's in it's the beginning of it is already there. They've already begun to experience it. And therefore, this book is very much addressed to people who could be very much afraid of what is about to happen. And so this morning, we just want to look at several different things that can be drawn from this passage, and I hope it will be an encouragement to you. The first thing is that this passage focuses on Jesus, and Jesus is the fixed point of reference that is meant to be conveyed by this passage. As you read through it, Jesus is at the center of it. The Father is referenced. The Holy Spirit is referenced. When it says in verse 4, Him who is and who was and who is to come, that's a reference to God the Father. When it says seven spirits who are before His throne in verse 4, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. But the focus is on Jesus. He's the one who is pictured later on as the Son of Man in all of His glory. And so the focus is on Jesus. And the very first verse says the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation means unveiling. The unveiling of Jesus. And unveiling uh, highlights the fact that something is not seen, but will be unveiled and seen. That's the whole idea, that something is hidden, something is not obvious, something is not in full view to everyone, um, but it's going to be unveiled. And in one sense, Jesus is unveiling things to John and, and through John to the church. And that's what the book of Revelation is. It's an unveiling of what is yet to come. But at the heart of what is yet to come is Jesus. So really, Jesus is unveiling Jesus in all that's being revealed. Um, when I was um, graduating from high school, there was a TV show called Dallas. And this Dallas TV show, there was this uh, famous um, storyline where J.R., one of the characters in Dallas, gets shot. And this, the ending of the season ends with J.R. being shot. And the question came out, who shot J.R.? And it wasn't just a local thing. It People around the world were fascinated by the question of who shot Jr. this TV show. You've got the Queen of England wanting to know who shot Jr. and other people around the world because the mystery was somebody did it and we don't know who it is. And we can't wait for the unveiling of who was behind what happened. Well, that's what we have here in the book of Revelation, a revelation of the unveiling of who is behind it all. Who's really behind all that's taking place in this world? That's a complex question on a number of different levels, especially when you think about stories like the book of Job. You know, who was involved in all that happened to Job? Well, you've got humans involved. You've also got Satan involved. 
but God is very much involved too. And that's the way it is on a global scale as well. And so the, the focus of this chapter is on Jesus and the focus of our lives needs to be on Jesus too if we want to escape being uh, overwhelmed by and controlled by fear. And that's the point of this vision that we have here because Jesus, what does he do for us? Jesus is the God-man who came into the world to show us the Father. He also came into the world to show us what man was supposed to look like and act like and be like and how he's supposed to love. He shows us the only way to be reconciled with God, which is himself. He shows us the path to true happiness, which is uh, trusting and obeying the Father. He shows us that ultimately he is truly in charge of all that's taking place and that the person in charge is totally trustworthy. He's someone that uh, you can stake your life on. And that's exactly what uh, the believers in this day and time were being asked to do was to stake their life on Jesus. And more and more in our country, that may be the question that we have to ask ourselves. Am I willing to stake my life on Jesus one way or the other as things progress? And so that's what it tells us in Hebrews 13, excuse me, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, endured suffering, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God as King of kings and Lord of lords. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And um, Brian made reference to that very dynamic. Jesus has gone before us, and he calls us, in a sense, not to die for sin, but to take up our cross, cross, and not to be afraid of the hostility of sinners, not to be afraid of the suffering that may come our way. And so the book of Revelation is a book that is meant to bring tremendous comfort to the saints when they're facing uncertain days, facing things that could cause them to be overwhelmed by fear. Um, There's so many things that could be said about the book of Revelation in terms of how to approach it. Uh, It's a symbolic book. I'll just say a couple things here. It's a book of uh, symbols. It's a book of pictures. I've called it uh, Jesus' Big Picture Book. Uh, Kids like picture books. And so they look at the pictures and they understand the story through the pictures. And that's exactly what we have in the book of Revelation. It's a picture book. We're to understand truths in light of the pictures that are painted for us in the book of Revelation. And the book was written uh, for the people in that day and time. That's why it says these things are going to happen very, very soon. So this was written for them in the first century, but it was also written for us in our day and time. And it was written for the final generation whenever that generation comes as well. And we could think about it as a reality show. We have all these reality shows that aren't really reality shows. They're they're unreal reality shows. They're 
Um, they're not showing you real life. They're trying to entertain you. Well, the book of Revelation is really a reality show in the sense that it is showing us reality. But it's showing us reality through things that aren't real. What do I mean by that? Jesus does not have a sword coming out of his mouth. So if you went and saw Jesus in heaven today, he would not have a sword coming out of his mouth. So that's an unreal picture about a real thing. The real thing has to do with the authority of his word. And so we we have to be careful of misunderstanding the picture, not realizing what it's pointing to. And that's why for a lot of people it's a, It's a very challenging book to read and to understand, and that's why there's so much debate about the book of Revelation. And yet, uh, it says at the very beginning in verse 3, Blessed or truly happy is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and who heed the things which are written in, in it, for the time is near. So Jesus, through John, says, It's crucial you read this book. And you understand it, and you believe it, and you live in light of it. And so, uh, to one degree or another, we need to understand uh, what the pictures are meaning to communicate to us, and we, we pray for wisdom as we do that. And so, in this first chapter, just let me highlight a few of the things that are pictured for us, or at least maybe sometimes even explicitly stated for us, like the second point, Jesus is coming back you look at verse 7 it says behold he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him so it is to be amen that is the theme of the book the theme of the book is that jesus is coming back and at the end of the book we see the, the return of jesus pictured for us and yet the question is What's going to happen before Jesus comes back? Because that was one of the burning questions the disciples had when just before Jesus went back to heaven. If you read Acts chapter 1, which we have several times over the last year, um, it tells us that one of the questions they asked was, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Meaning, is everything going to happen that we've been longing for right now? I mean, is it all going to come together for us? And the reality is, the answer was no, not right away. Uh, when we think of the coming of Jesus, sometimes you might think of it in, as the coming of the sunrise. You know, you get up early, got your cup of coffee, and you watch the sunrise. And unless you look right at the sun, maybe, and it gets too high and it begins to shine too bright, it might hurt your eyes. But for the most part... The sunrise is not a painful thing. It's a beautiful thing to watch. And it exposes what's all around us. So there's a sense in which the coming of Jesus is like the sunrise. It exposes what's been in the dark. But in another way, it's much more like giving birth. And that's what we see pictured in Matthew 24, where the Lord Jesus pictures the return, his return in terms of birth pangs and and transition and and all that goes on in giving birth because there's going to be some pain involved, maybe a lot of pain involved before the birth of the new heaven and new earth, the kingdom of God on earth. And so 
That's why Peter could say in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Uh, Don't wonder, uh, did I get this Jesus thing right? Did he really go back to heaven? Is he really reigning over everything? Is he really going to usher in the kingdom of God and heaven on earth? Uh, Maybe, you know, uh, that wasn't really true because it looks like uh, the Christians are persecuted and rejected and... um, living in caves and and suffering in all kinds of ways. Maybe it's not true. And Jesus is telling us through the book of Revelation, oh, it's so very true. It is the reality behind everything, yet it may not look that way. It may not look like it's true, but hold on, hold on. It says in Matthew 24 and verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days... They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, which means there's going to be great tribulation before Jesus returns. And that's why in Second Thessalonians, Peter, excuse me, Paul could say in chapter one, uh, he could encourage the church and, and say, it's so good to see you persevering, so good to see you still trusting, even in the midst of all your trials and, and tribulations, because you know what? One day Jesus is coming back. He says, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed one day from heaven, he's going to deal out retribution to those who are rejecting God and rejecting the gospel. But he's also going to be marveled at above the, among those who have believed. And so Paul is saying, hang in there, keep trusting, don't lose heart, um, All the promises of God are going to be fulfilled in Jesus and through Jesus. And so the rest of the book of Revelation is uh, visions. And and you could divide it into seven visions. You could divide it into chapter 1. It's a vision of the reigning Christ. You can't see Jesus on his throne, but he's there. Uh, Chapters 2 and 3, you could say it's a vision of the embattled church. In the first century, but in a sense, throughout the centuries. Uh, Chapters 4 through 7 is a picture of the kinds of things we should uh, expect throughout history, Uh, sort of like uh, early uh, birth pains. Uh, Chapters 8 through 11, uh, I call fig tree kind of events or trumpets and that a trumpet announces what's about to come. It lets you know that something new, significant is about to happen and that there will be those kinds of events in the history of of the world, but especially as we get near the end. Chapters 12 through 14 is a vision of uh, the, the battle that's behind the scenes, the battle that's taking place in the spiritual realm that cannot be seen in the physical realm. Chapters 15 through 20 talk about the day of the Lord and the ultimate judgment that is going to be unleashed on the earth that's pictured in the destruction of Jerusalem, it's pictured in the destruction of Rome, can be pictured in other kinds of judgment on the earth, but ultimately will be a final judgment. And then chapters 21 and 22 is actually a vision of heaven on earth. And that's what Jesus has promised you and me to all those who believe is heaven on earth. But it's going to take a while to get there. And there's a lot of uh, tribulation that has to be gone through before we get there. And so the encouragement is don't be surprised by Trouble, tribulation, 
pain and suffering, it doesn't mean God is failing to keep his promises. It just means he's he's promised tribulation in his coming. So he's fulfilling his promises. He's promised to fulfill his promises through the promise of tribulation. And we have to hold on to that, however difficult things might come. But this whole chapter focuses especially on Jesus and his rule. And the first thing that it highlights is his rule over the world. Um, If you look at verse 5, it says it focuses on Jesus and it describes him this way, the faithful witness, meaning that he, he came and he faithfully testified to the truth, the truth about God, the truth about who he is and his role, the truth about what's to come. It says he's the firstborn of the dead, which means that's a ref, uh, reference to his resurrection. And then it says, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, the ruler of the kings of the earth, meaning that he rules those who rule. He's the authority over those in authority. And therefore, to be an authority over the those in authority means to be an authority over everybody. And that is the picture that we have. Now, sometimes we want to think about um, Jesus' rule over everything in terms of uh, kind of like a puppet or a puppet master, as if uh, he's just working the strings. And I don't think that's the way the Bible portrays his control over rulers and over the world. It's better pictured, I think, and neither analogy is perfect, but I think it's better pictured like um, what we did with the dog we had when I was growing up. We unfortunately didn't have a fence around our yard. We chained this dog to a tree. At least my dad changed the, chained this dog to a tree. And that dog walked back and forth like this for years and dug a trench in our backyard. He walked as far as he could. And that's where that trench was dug in our yard. As, as long as the chain was, was as far as he went in our yard. And um, unfortunately, that was not a good idea because that dog got mean and even bit one of my friends while we were playing football in the backyard. And the reality is that that dog had a lot of freedom within the length of that chain. But in a sense, that dog was restrained and that dog was chained. That dog was controlled. And so there's no doubt that the people who do what they do, do it freely. That's why there's a just judgment at the end of the world. If it was just a matter of God doing this, then that wouldn't be a just judgment. It's a complex thing. It's something that's beyond our full understanding how it all works out. But it works out more like this, that God is not going to let people do any more than he thinks is what is going to be profitable for his glory, his people, the fulfillment of his purposes, and the fulfillment of his promises. That there is the reign of regulation. He raises up people into authority. He brings people down. He allows them to go so so far on this chain, and then he stops them. But ultimately, he is regulating all that happens. People are still responsible. There's going to be a just judgment at the end of the world, and nobody can say, you made me do it. It's your fault. That won't happen. But God is very much 
sovereign and ruling and reigning over it all. And, and that's what we see actually pictured in Daniel chapter 4, which we'll get to eventually, where um, the king of Babylon thinks that all the glory that he has, all the power that he has, all the wealth that he has is because of himself. And evidently an angel is sent and speaks to him and says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. So Nebuchadnezzar essentially goes crazy and he lives like an animal for seven years. And then what happens? They put him back in power. He becomes king again. What's the point? God takes people down. God raises people up. He can even put people in power that have lived seven years like an animal. That would not make any sense whatsoever to say, hey, would you rule over us? It's a picture of God's complete sovereignty over who's in authority and who isn't. And that is meant to be a comfort to us. It is no accident. Um, it was no accident that Trump was president. It's no accident that Joe Biden is president. Jesus is sovereign over it all. And we need not be afraid in these days. The fourth point is Jesus not only rules the world, but he rules his church. It's the reign of protection and provision and purity. Uh, verse 13 says, and in the middle of the lampstands, the lampstands are a picture of the church. And it reminds us that we're to be a light in a dark world. We live in a very dark, dark world. And this is a very dark, dark time in the history of our country. And we're meant to be a light in the darkness. And it says, in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and it goes on from there. That phrase, one like a son of man or the son of man, is actually a reference back to Daniel chapter 7, in which it says in verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancients of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So the picture there is of Jesus as ruling and reigning over all things. But in the context, that context, he's ruling and reigning for the sake of the church. He's ruling and reigning over the world as the shepherd of his people. I think that's an important way to think about this is that him being in the midst of his church is like a shepherd in the midst of his flock. And that shepherd has a short rod that he uses to protect the sheep from wolves and from bears and from lions. He also uses that short rod as needed to correct the sheep, not to beat them, but to correct them, protect and correct. 
also has a long staff with a hook on it that he uses to direct the sheep and also to hook them and rescue them when they fall into danger. And so we have a picture of him in the middle of the lampstands like a shepherd, watching over his sheep that he died for, watching over the sheep that he loves, ready to use all that he has to meet their every need, whatever it might be. And it says in verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. And those stars referred to the churches. There's a whole big debate about what the stars are. Uh, Some say they're literal angels. Some say they're pastors. Uh, A lot of people say uh, because he uses a a singular and a plural for uh, um, angel in reference to the churches that he's probably talking about the condition of the churches themselves, that the letter was written to the churches in light of their condition. But a shepherd would be someone who was very concerned about the condition of his flock. And the picture is the fact that we, as the people of God, are in his hands. He knows very well our condition. He knows what the threats are. He knows what our needs are. And he's in the hand of favor, the right hand. That's the hand of favor and the hand of power, the hand of protection. And that that is what we need to see and think about when we're tempted to be afraid, is that I am in the hand of the one who died for me and therefore will withhold no good thing from me, will take care of me. And so Jesus rules over what happens in his visible church. It's interesting, uh, at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, it says, These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So Jesus is enthroned as King of kings and Lord of lords. He was enthroned, it says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. God the Father put all things in subjection under the feet of Jesus. And then it says, And gave him, speaking of Jesus, as head over all things. Why? To or for the church. So he rules over everything. And he does it especially with with a view to take care of all those who are trusting him. He will not take his eye off off of us. He will not let us go. He cares for us. And the picture that we have that is painted here, it talks about him having a robe and a golden sash, and that points to his priesthood, because that's what the priest in the Old Testament would wear. When it talks about his white hair, when it says his head and hair were white, it probably should be translated better, uh, his head... Uh, had white hair. That's the idea of white. And that speaks of wisdom. It speaks of dignity and holiness. Uh, His eyes were a flame of fire, which is a picture of penetrating insight and righteousness, discerning righteousness. His feet were like burnished bronze, which speaks of stability and strength, and and strength especially in terms of uh, doing what is just and right for his people and what is just and right for the world. His voice, like the sound of many waters, obviously is a picture of power and majesty, like 
like uh, Niagara Falls. You get close to Niagara Falls and the, the power, the sound is overwhelming. And that's what we have here. All of it is meant to picture someone who uh, stands before the Father on our behalf, who is perfectly wise, perfectly righteous, uh, knows what's going on, is strong, is powerful, and is truly loving. You remember it says back in verse 5, to him who loves us. And when it says, in his right hand he held seven stars, that is a picture of him practically loving us. And the whole idea of the sword coming out of his mouth is a picture of his authoritative word, which is about him being ready to fight for his people. Now that fighting for his people will include fighting against the impurity in their own hearts and in their own congregations, but also fighting against those who would seek to hurt them in any ultimate way. And then lastly, it says his face was like the sun shining in its strength. What is that all about? How is that supposed to be comforting? Well, it says in Psalm 19, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Picture there is of the sun and all of its brightness coming out, ready to do what it was made to do. What was Jesus, quote, made to do, so to speak? He came to be an able and willing savior for his people. And he is eager. He he looks at the future with a smile on his face. He says, I'm here and I'm ready to help and I'm ready to accomplish all that I've done to achieve on your behalf. There is a smiling face behind the dark clouds. That's the smiling face of Jesus, like the brilliance of the sun, who says, it's my joy to be your savior and to be your king, to rescue you and to serve you and to take care of you. You don't have to be afraid. I don't do it reluctantly. I don't do it half-heartedly. I do it with all my heart and with all that I've achieved on your behalf. Dennis Johnson says, he describes his vision of Jesus. He says, Jesus reveals himself to John in the language of prophetic symbolism, not in a literal description of his resurrection body as he now sits at God's right hand. Um, But we are not to think that the glorified body in which Jesus ascended to heaven now is a sword in place of a tongue, snow white hair, or a face so overpowering with physical light that it cannot be viewed with joy by the pure in heart. The symbols seen by John and the vision reveal not what Jesus looks like, but what he is like. His identity as the searcher of hearts, full of consuming holiness and boundless wisdom. The perfect priest standing for his people before the Father. The perfect king defending them against the devil by his invincible word. Revelation's visions show us how things are, not how they look to the physical eye. And that's what's being communicated the reality of who Jesus is, the reality of the way things are, not how it might look physically. That brings us to uh, Jesus' rule over history, the reign of providence and purpose and promises. He says in verse 17, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. He says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. 
Before he says, do not be afraid, he says, he, he placed his right hand on me, the hand of favor. Do not be afraid. Then he, he says, I am the first and the last. What does that mean? It's very similar to what it says in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha was the first uh, letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega was the last letter. So first letter and last letter. The implication is I'm the first and last and I'm everything in between. What does that mean that he is everything in between? Well, Jesus in verse 19 says, I want you to write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Why? I want you to write the story that's already been written. I want you to write my story. And I'm going to tell you what it is. Because I am the author of everything from A to Z. It's just like you've got J.R.R. Tolkien who wrote The Lord of the Rings. And I don't know how exactly he wrote it, but many times authors will think of a beginning and they'll think of an end and they'll, then they'll try to figure out how they get from the beginning to the end. Well, uh, Jesus says, I determine the beginning and I determine the end and I determine everything that needs to take place from the beginning all the way to the end so that the end turns out just the way I intended for it to be. Jesus rules over history um it says in colossians chapter one he is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation for by him jesus all things were created both in the heavens and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things have been created through him and for him through jesus and for jesus history is his story. History is for Jesus. Every person in authority, whether it's Putin in Russia or President Biden here in our country or whoever else it might be, they are in power for Jesus' sake. He is the reason they're in power because they're a part of the story. And the story that's being written is one in which Jesus is honored as king of kings and lord of lords and so um, that's what we need to keep in mind that's what we need to realize and that brings us to the last point i need to make this very quickly here jesus is the reason we don't need to fear if he's the reason why everything is happening and he loves us then we have no reason to fear right because to fear means there's something about Jesus and what he's doing that isn't good for me. That's not true. That, that would be a lie. Now, there's no doubt we struggle with what's happening. I do just as much as anybody does, I think. Because we're like what Corey Chin Boom used to talk about, the tapestry. We see the backside of it. All we see are the strings and the, and the knots. And it looks confusing and it not very attractive, and it's not something you really want to put on your wall. But he says, if you flip it around, you realize there's a beautiful picture on the other side that all those strings, loose ends, all those loose ends that we can't tie together, all those knots on the back side, when you turn the tapestry around, you see that it it's all fits together to be a beautiful picture. And the picture is a picture of Jesus. And it's a picture that says at the bottom, every knee shall bow 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so it all comes together. For us, uh, practically, one of the biggest reasons we make bad decisions is because we make them out of fear. And like I said before, nowhere in the Bible are we taught to make decisions based on being afraid of what may or may not happen. In Matthew 25, you actually have, in the context of the return of Christ, the story of the talents. And the guy who did not do what he should have done with the talent said, I was afraid. That was his excuse. I was afraid. And that was why he did not obey. That's why he did not do with his life what God called him to do. In Proverbs 29, 25, it says, the fear of man brings a snare. It keeps us from doing what we should do. Just this week, I was in a discussion with a group of men, and they were talking about what's going on in our country. And one man made the comment, you know, maybe... Uh, I'm just not sure. We're wrestling with what to do. Maybe we should stay here in California or maybe we should go find a place out in the Midwest that's just out in the middle of nowhere. Another man said, yeah, I've got relatives who've moved to this other country. I don't know if it's South America or wherever. They bought some land and they're just out off the grid in a foreign country. They left the country. Now, if somebody chooses to do that, that's not inherently wrong to do that. What might be wrong or will be wrong is if it's driven by fear. God always calls us to do what's right and wise and good. Now, if you decide to move to the Midwest or you decide to go to South America, it needs to be because you believe it's the right and wise and good thing, thing to do, all things considered, in light of what the Bible says and in light of what's going on. But if I just run because I'm afraid, then that's wrong. The Bible says it's wrong just to act simply on the basis of fear because it denies the truth of Jesus, denies who he is and what he's doing and what he's promised us, and it dishonors him. It dishonors our Lord and our King. And so we all have to have to fight that and to be reminded of the very scripture that Linda reminded us of earlier, which I have in my notes, Habakkuk chapter 3. Because the context of what uh, Linda mentioned this morning is Habakkuk says, I'm afraid. He says, I'm afraid of what I've heard. I've heard that the Babylonians are coming and they're going to take us into exile and they're going to kill people and they're going to do horrible things to us. And he says in verse 16, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. So he's saying, all I can see coming in the future is pain and suffering. And I'm afraid. I am trembling in my boots. But that's when he says the very thing that Linda highlighted in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, 
or no toilet paper on the shelves or anything else. Yet I will exult in the Lord and I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Amen and amen. As parents, and uh, and Jen and I have talked about this a lot, we we want to give our kids uh, assurances. And uh, many parents will say things like this to their kids, I will always be here for you. Or they'll say things like, uh, it will be okay. And yet as parents, we have no authority to say those things. I may not be here for my kids tomorrow. I don't know that. Uh, I cannot say for sure that it's going to be okay in the way that they want it to be okay. But Jesus is different. Jesus says, I will be here for you, even if everybody else walks away. And he can say, in all the ways that really matter, it's okay. It will be okay. It will be okay. I promise you. For you and everybody that I've died for, everyone who's trusting me, it will be okay. There's a lot more to say. Um, The politics of fear are strong in our country. Fear is being used to drive people to do what they're doing. I'm out of time. So my final encouragement to us is, We're not all going to agree on what to do, but let us agree that we're not going to be motivated by fear. We're going to seek to do what is right and wise and good in the eyes of God by his grace. We're not going to deny the rule and reign of Jesus over everything, but we're going to trust God and fight fear and fight being simply motivated by fear to the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you would help us, help us, Father, please, to embrace your word, to trust you, to love in the ways that we've been called to love, and not to be controlled by fear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.